Welcome to Conversations 360 podcasts and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what is taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. We were afforded quite a bit of uh, authority and responsibility, and uh, things moved very, very fast, and we felt empowered, and it was just really, really exciting. It were crazy, crazy hours, but it was a lot of fun. And so you didn't think about how, how, how much you worked, how long you worked. You didn't even worry about how much you got paid. It was just so fun to be building new things in, in Asia. Those are the words of Lyndon Chow, whose professional and personal experiences span the two worlds of this podcast series, Asia and the West. An American who received an electrical engineering degree as an undergrad at Northwestern fell in love with business, and he, shortly after graduation, joined Morgan Stanley in New York, but Asia beckoned. So he relocated with Morgan Stanley first to Hong Kong, then to Beijing, then to Taipei, where he actually set up their operations there, and then in Shanghai, which is where he and I met. That his last post with Morgan Stanley was in Shanghai, where he was the managing director and China head of operations with a team of over 100 people. In our conversation, Lyndon describes his latest activities, which involve helping his college classmate, an American who grew up in Minnesota, navigate the China marketplace for his startup in 3D technology. Lyndon's clearly excited about this experience, and in our conversation, he gives terrific insights into business in China from his early days there to today. Much has clearly changed in the economy, the political environment, and the people, and he brings it all alive with his keen observations. So let's get started. Welcome to 360 Conversations and this podcast series, Asia and the West Linden. So delighted that we're having this conversation. Thank you very much, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So when we talk about conversations taking place between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind to you? What, what sort of flashes in front of you? What does that mean? Uh, it means to me opportunities for uh collaboration but also opportunities for conflict uh, opportunities are great but the risk of conflict is increasing as well as evidence and what's going on in the south china sea so it's a uh, it's a very uh it's a very um very critical juncture i think in, in the history of east and west i i feel the same and i'm i'm fascinated that 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 you brought up the the dual side of this now You've you've lived really in Asia since let's see how many years ago was it that you actually went to Asia? Quite a while. Uh, ninety four, yeah, nineteen ninety four. So twenty two years so far. Okay, so so how has the dialogue shifted during that time? Well, when I came out to Asia back in nineteen ninety four, I mean it was uh, really exciting times. Emerging markets was expanding rapidly. Uh, you know, China was still quite backwards. Uh, with Morgan Stanley, I I was part of the original team to help set up China's first joint venture with uh, China Construction Bank, 
Uh, and uh, it, it was really exciting. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Chinese respected the West quite a lot and uh, saw us as uh, having critical uh, experience and skills and look forward to the technology transfer from the West to the East. And the folks at headquarters just had so much going on with international expansion that we were afforded quite a bit of uh, authority and responsibility. And uh, things moved very, very fast, and we felt empowered, and it was just really, really exciting. We worked crazy, crazy hours, but it was a lot of fun. And so you didn't think about how, how, how much you worked, how long you worked. You didn't even worry about how much you got paid. It was just so fun to be building new things in, in Asia. Um, so that, that, that was then. And it, it was a good ride for, for some time. It was, it was really a lot of fun. Uh, but I think post-financial crisis um, in, uh, in 2008, uh, you know, things started to change dramatically. Um, you know, so there was a much higher risk aversion mindset uh, within most, uh, you know, corporate uh, hallways. And um, things started to slow down significantly. And, uh, and the dynamic, too, between uh, the U.S., or the, the, the West and, and the East also started to change because then being admitted into the WTO back in 2000, uh, you know, China just grew at a phenomenal pace. Uh, they quickly outgrew Morgan Stanley, for example. So it, was, it became clear that after about five years, they had kind of learned the tricks of the trade and uh, they wanted to take more control of that joint venture. And so we got relegated to kind of the, the back seat and became more of a passive investor. Still a very great investment, still a, a wonderful venture, but it wasn't a venture which we could, you know, manage and control anymore. Uh, and so, you know, that that's kind of a microcosm of what was going on across China, I think, across industry. Uh, the Chinese were amassing significant experience and significant skills very, very quickly. And they, especially following the financial crisis, it kind of dawned on them that, hey, maybe our teachers don't know as much as we had credited them with, you know, with all their foresight, with all their risk management capabilities, you know, how did this happen? Uh, and, and while we were, you know, kind of accused of being so backwards and so conservative, you know, why do we seem to, you know, come out of this in, in better shape? So I think the, 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 the mental psychology began to change. And, uh, and and over the years, it's evolved into, I think, a, a greater sense of, of pride, a greater sense of, hey, you know, I, I don't need to, you know, defer everything anymore to uh, to others, and I'm kind of the master of my own destiny. So that, that psychology has been changing over the years. And, and, and I guess be, 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 because of that, um, you know, a lot of U.S. multinationals you know, sense, you know, greater and greater uh, difficulty in, 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 you know, kind of securing the land, right, for, for, for the business. And, and therefore, you know, with, with, with problems elsewhere, with better opportunities elsewhere, I think the investment in, in China, uh, you know, started to lose its luster. And whereas before they really needed, uh, you know, the generals on the front, front line to, to help them grow the business uh, with, with, with the scale back, with resistance coming in from China, both from a regulatory perspective as well as from, um, you know, 
uh, entrenched incumbent corporations who are gaining power and strength, uh, a lot of multinationals decided to scale back. And, um, and uh, so the empowerment, the, uh, the, the delegation, um, you know, just grew smaller and smaller over the years. It's interesting. I, I, I suppose I, when you were talking about conversation, I imagine when you're in the West, people think you can explain all things Chinese and vice versa. Um, how, exactly. <laughs> how, how accurate do you think the Chinese understanding of the West is? And, uh, and I'd be interested to hear just the other way around. How much do you think that China really understands about how the West thinks and operates and vice versa? Uh, I, I, I don't think, I don't think either side understands each other well enough. And I think as with human beings, once a mindset develops, it becomes difficult to change that mindset. Uh, and that's what I'm particularly worried about. So, you know, I, I've grown up on, on both sides of the at the pond, the, the big pond, and um, and I appreciate the, the, the strengths of both, and I see the potential and the opportunities, but but I, I, I'm afraid more and more uh, people see the um, the not so attractive uh, side of the other, and I, I think that comes out of ignorance. I think that comes out of lack of sufficient information. I mean, even even very, very bright, very, very well-informed uh, writers at The Economist have captured, you know, the facts and the data so eloquently. But I, I think they're, they're, they're missing some elements, and those elements uh, can, can sway one's opinion to a significant degree. So it, it, it's quite unfortunate. Um, I, I, think, I think, you know, both China does not understand the West and increasingly understands the West less. And likewise, I think the West increasingly doesn't understand China and is become, it's becoming increasingly fearful of China. You know, it's so that's in, an unfortunate development. It, and it's interesting, isn't it? it it's, there's an irony here in that we've never been more technologically able to have um, major communications. But I think you know my bias is that face-to-face -face conversation is really the name of the game, and it's when we actually get to places, meet people, see them in their own milieu that we think, oh my gosh, we do have much more in common than we thought we did. And in fact, we could do a lot more in a collaborative mode than any other one. So um, th th that's one of the reasons for this curated conversation. You know, I'm just, I'm really fixated on the need for people really understanding how each other thinks. And sometimes just hearing each other talk is helpful. I agree with you completely, and that, that was that was the the reason for my pause in answering your question. Because you know, I, I thought you know, surely in this day of the internet, instant information, right? Um, you know, people ought to understand each other better. But that's actually not what we see. It's kind of sad. Well, let's see what we can do about it. So let's talk for a minute about <laughs> what's what's on the mind of. Let's talk about what is on the mind of a lot of people who have an interest in China, and that is the recent downturn in the Chinese economy. What is happening, and how is that impact being felt? Yeah, um, you know, China is uh, growing at a much slower pace than it did uh, earlier. Um, I mean, that, that everyone is very fixated on, oh, okay, 
10% before or 10% plus before and now only 6.7. But, you know, let's not forget that 6.7 is still a very, very high rate of growth compared to, you know, one to two percentage in most developed markets and sometimes a negative GDP growth in quite a lot of countries. So it is still, you know, in absolute terms, um, a very, very uh, good number and it, providing that everything uh, stays same, you know, China continues to be on an upward trajectory in terms of its GDP. It's already surpassed Japan, and it, it, it's on a path to intersect the U.S. unless things completely blow up. So, and so the, the GDP is has slowed, but it's still a very healthy rate of growth. Uh, and I, I think that there's some who would who would argue that the slowdown in China was not an accident but was instead engineered by the government of China, specifically uh, in response to a lot of the travails as highlighted uh, in The Economist. So, uh, you know, I, I think if, if, you know, if, if you're a leader and you see this, this rapid economic growth built upon uh, low-end manufacturing, speed, uh, uh, you know, the developed markets, you know, that, that model is just not sustainable. As wages rise, you know, it, it, you know, it becomes a sunset industry. And in the, in the pursuit of, you know, rapid, rapid growth, a lot of things got sidelined. So it was quantity in place of quality. And, you know, on the Chinese side, it, it's understood that the government actually intentionally decided to focus more on quality rather than on quantity, still a respectable rate of growth, but to instead divert energies toward ensuring that, you know, the economy gets grown uh, at, a, at a healthy clip in a more controlled and in a more sustainable way. So I think there's a, there's a positive side to this. It's not all negative. Well, that's especially interesting, I think, when you think about the individuals on the ground now who have, gosh, anybody who was born 30 years ago or less in China has been living in a country where growth has been truly exponential, something that their parents uh, certainly couldn't have envisioned being so strong and so sustained. But I would imagine that there is some sense of, oh, my gosh, this, this golden uh, trajectory on which we were placed somehow now seems not quite the same opportunity it was before. So is there that sense, especially in the middle class, that uh, what's happened here, am I going to uh, not be able to continue living as well as I have been? Is there fear of that? Yeah, there, there definitely is fear of that. I think, um, you know, what we see in the rest of the world in terms of people who had acquired assets earlier, who have amassed wealth earlier, are able to increase the value of that wealth at a much faster clip than people who, you know, became middle class later, uh, who see these opportunities increasingly elusive. I think this is uh, not just a China issue, it's a global phenomenon. The divide between the rich and the poor continues to grow. And and it impacts, too, uh, millennials and how they think about their lives and, and, and about their future. And that's why we see a lot of the problems that we see around the world. So China is certainly not immune to that. that. That That's certainly true. Now, have individuals there become more vocal about their concerns 
I'm interested in their willingness to speak up to authority. You know, Westerners view Chinese as reluctant to do that. And of course, they read or they hear about punishment to those who take on the government. How, how real is that? Are people feeling that they have a voice? Are they expressing it? And what's the ramification of that? I think people are expressing it in areas where they um, believe they have um, maybe uh, some room for influence. So people have certainly been vocal about the air pollution in China. And we've seen the government really rolling up its sleeves to try to address that. Uh, we've seen people become very vocal about, um, you know, the excessive rapid rate of growth in China, uh, the, the high-speed rail derailment a few years back uh, led to a lot of government scrutiny on, you know, do we have enough focus on, on safety in public transportation, the Tianjin explosion, uh, you know, the, it's just the, the, the careless disregard for um, adherence to regulation. You know, that's got uh, increased government scrutiny on those. So, so the, the, those are situations where when there's a public outcry, you know, WeChat channels just, just go crazy. Uh, there's no suppression of that kind of dissent. Um, but but if, it, if it's about, you know, challenging the authority of the government, if it's, uh, you know, questioning the, the, the leadership, that, that's, where, that's where you can expect a clampdown. So the clampdown on NGOs, I think there's, there might be a, a, some, um, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of focus on, you know, why is China clamping down on NGOs? Um, from, from, from what I hear from the Chinese circles, it's because a lot of organizations have been using NGOs to try to, uh, you know, challenge the government. And so, you know, challenge the government in, in areas where, you know, it, it's very, very important to, to the West in terms of human rights. But from a Chinese perspective, they're more focused on ensuring that the, comp that the country continues to, uh, you know, to, to run in a, in a stable fashion and continues to grow in a sustainable manner. So... Uh, I, I guess they're a, little, a bit more practical. They want to make sure that the physical needs of the country get addressed first before the spiritual needs, kind of in, in, in accordance with Maslow's hierarchy. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. But you know, so it's it's it, it, you know, you can kind of see both sides of the story. Yes, you can you can see the importance of of, of uh, you know what these NGOs are trying to do, but at the same time, you can also see that China recognizes it's got, uh, you know, not an easy problem to direct a country of 1.6, 1.7 billion people across, you know, vast geographies, 30-plus provinces, and uh, it, it can't afford to be a democracy yet. I mean, they point to examples in Russia, they point to examples in Taiwan and other democracies, which have just kind of gone out of control. Uh, and I think you know, we, we, we all studied in history class the most efficient form of government is the benevolent dictatorship. But I guess, you know, whether, whether you agree or not, whether you view them as totalitarian or authoritarian, maybe in the eyes of the, the Chinese leadership, and, and I think across most of the Chinese people, they view the leadership as a benevolent dictator. And so as long as you're benevolent, as long as you're taking care of, you know, uh, the physical needs of the people, making sure that people are well-fed and taken care of, as long as you do that, um, you know, they don't, they don't challenge your authority. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what um, that's what China's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Now, what about immigration, though? There, it, it is true that some of China's uh, wealthy people, as well as its very bright people, have left the country or are leaving the country. Is that as big an issue as as some Westerners uh, have been led to believe that it is? Do you, do you see a lot of that? Uh, there, there is certainly a lot of um, uh, a lot of migration of, of people as well as assets um, outside of China, um, and and part of that is I agree. With, I, part of that is a lack of confidence um, of you know by the Chinese in China. There is definitely uh, there is definitely uh, disillusionment and the, the the slowdown of the China economy. There is definitely a lack of confidence with the renminbi and where it's going because it's been depreciating. There's a lack of confidence about, you know, just the, the level of, of safety and the quality of life here. You know, I mean, the air pollution has been targeted by the government, but they're still, you know, far away from being able to uh, to completely address it. So, a lot of people for quality of life issues for. Um, you know, diversification of assets issue or uh, the opportunity to, you know, provide an environment where their, their kids can, uh, you know, can, 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 go, can enjoy an international education that's not, you know, just, uh, you know, kind of a very draconian, just memorize this and memorize that. Uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of people do aspire uh, to, to immigrate overseas or to send their kids abroad. Um, now you, I, I remember that yeah. you uh, said that um, we, when we talked about innovation at one point, and it seems to me that now yeah. for those that remain in China, and that's a lot of people, uh, some would say yeah. that a crucial requirement, maybe more crucial than ever, is for China to become even more innovative in order to solve not only these pressing large-scale issues like environmental pollution and healthcare and so on, but but also mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to really make this move successfully from the earlier export model. So um, yeah. what about this opportunity for innovation? Is it, is it uh, we know about Alibaba and Tencent. There, there's no question that, that, that it is alive in, in, in a great way. But where will increased innovation come from? Will it be from the expats who used to be, sort of looked at as the source of this? Will it be the young people educated in the West who return and eventually take over businesses, or will it be homegrown? And I know we'll we'll talk about the educational system in a second, but just where will this innovation come from in your from your perspective? Um I, I think it'll come from the from the millennials, from from the young people, uh, wherever they are, whether they're educated overseas, whether they're uh, young people uh, coming to China because they see that there are opportunities here uh, to innovate and to grow and to explore new markets. Uh, I don't I don't think there's a, um, a demographic, uh, you know, monopoly with respect to where this this innovation comes from. It'll it'll just come from need. Uh, so a lot of it would come from people that are indigenous to China because they're the most well aware of what the local market needs. Um, but uh, but but if they're you know if if, you know, if people who kind of grew up in the traditional channels of education, uh, you know would 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 find it more you know would uh, 
uh, how should I say, you know, they're not they're not trained to innovate because they're trained just to to memorize and and uh, and just to follow instructions in a very hierarchical way. So that just doesn't fuel innovation, um, which is also why a lot of the parents now want that their kids they have Western education because they recognize uh, the creativity that that fosters and the value of that um, for for innovation. So. Yeah, I don't. I, I I think I think for innovation to happen in China, it would come from the young people, the millennials. Um, but it would be a combination of people who grew up here who are where the needs, uh, plus people from the outside coming in. I don't think there's a there's a monopoly uh, to this uh, for, for any democracy. So, Lyndon, I know you serve as a trustee of the Shanghai International School, and and my understanding is it's the largest international school in China. Now. I take it yeah. the approach of that school is to teach the kind of critical thinking that you think is is, exactly. not, is not true of the of the uh, t- traditional Chinese education, which reinforces the hierarchical structure that that is is not so helpful, especially in terms of innovation. Yeah. So, how are you guys going to scale this sort of thing? Where how 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 do you do that in a country that large with such an entrenched educational system? Is this something that's just going to take a long time, or will there be um, a real uh, disruption of the traditional educational process? Yeah, I, I think I think there's growing recognition that our style of education at schools like the Shanghai American School, where you know on the surface it looks like kids are just playing, they're just having fun, but actually they're they're learning. Um, where the emphasis is placed not on learning content, but on learning skills and learning how to be resourceful in a changing and dynamic world to get information where, you know, wherever it's sourced and to be able to use that information effectively. I think that, that, is, uh, that is definitely what we do at Shanghai American School and other, other international schools. And there's um, insatiable demand for that kind of education. Unfortunately, in China, there are... Um, there are regulations from the Ministry of Education which uh, limit the students who enroll at schools like ours to those who hold foreign passports. So um, by definition, we are capped uh, in our growth. So we have historically catered to expat families, uh, people uh, who hold foreign passports. Uh, and, you know, I, I, honestly, you know, all, all of the international schools are facing big challenges in enrollment because as multinationals scale down, as they send their expats back, as they replace expats with locals, you know, the, the customer base continues to shrink. Um, and, uh, and, and therefore, a lot, of, a lot of schools now are cropping up, uh, offering um, what they call bilingual education. These are still controlled by the Ministry of Education. They need to adhere to, um, you know, strict curriculum guidelines. Um, up through grade nine, and then they're, they're, they're free to, you know, kind of uh, be more creative in the high school years. Um, but there's, yeah, there's, there's huge demand for this kind of education. Uh, but currently, there are some controls by the Ministry of Education, and they want to make sure that people don't get completely, you know, brainwashed by, by Western values. So I, I concur with that part of the Economist article. Uh, they want to make sure that they still have control over how people think. Uh, in, in, in China, and therefore we're, we're kind of capped with respect to how much we can grow. 
That's so interesting uh, based on the tremendous demand there is on the part of parents. And I would imagine, especially for those who can't afford to send their kids to private schools, that pressure will become even greater. And who knows? It sounds like a sounds like a major business opportunity, actually. So, if I could elaborate a little, little bit further on that, yeah. it's kind of interesting how um, you know how this um, you know mo- modern warfare is no longer about military might. Uh, you know, it's kind of shifted over to the economy, but it's also shifting over to ideology. So I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm reading beyond the tea leaves, but if you take a look at the new SAT, if you take a look at the new SAT, they've intentionally made it a lot more accessible to people who grow up um, in an American educational system. So, for example, the SAT verbal, they try to use words that are more uh, you know, commonly seen and commonly used rather than words that are just difficult, but you never use them in your lifetime. They try to embed in all of the uh, questions uh, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of text around U.S. values, human rights, freedom of expression, stuff like that. So, in, in order for students to successfully do well on the new SAT, uh, they need to basically be indoctrinated with uh, you know U.S. values, um, and so it, 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 it's kind of it's kind of interesting. How, how the battleground has shifted over to, to ideology. Uh, and, and clearly, you know, people in China, they want to send their kids to the, to the U.S. They see the U.S. universities as the best universities in the world. And now a gating factor will be to do well on an SAT, which by virtue of studying the SAT will help to spread U.S. ideology. That is fascinating. I, 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 I want to learn more about that. that that's really quite interesting. I've got just a couple more questions. One is, what sure. about the increased pressure regarding privacy? Are, are there, is, I'm not talking so much here about censorship as I am about, uh, you know, people in the West have, have gotten, especially recently, just really rabid about uh, the, the sense of people getting a hold of their data and invading their privacy on all sorts of levels. Is, how does that differ from how people in China feel, where they've had sort of a big brother situation for quite a while? Is there, is there more of a, 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 a not-so-strong a sense about protecting their own data and what they hold private to themselves? Yeah, I, I don't think there's as much of um, a premium value placed on privacy. I think people just recognize that everything they do and say uh, could be, uh, you know, could be made available to the government, to the authorities. And so just be careful about what you do and say. Um, I mean, I mean, Tencent is the, the, the biggest, uh, you know, social media platform in China with, like, I think, seven, eight hundred million users. And everyone knows that um, WeChat basically is allied with the government. You know, they, uh, they, they have people kind of looking at posts, and, and if, 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 it's, if this is something that's inappropriate, it gets taken down. Uh, therefore, you're careful about what you put up there, what you share with your friends, because it's just recognized that there is, there is no privacy. Um, but I don't think people are as bent out of shape about that here. I think people recognize that, you know, um, I have 
uh, a lot of freedom as long as I don't do anything to challenge the government. And for most people, they're fine with that. If you, if you walk around in China, you feel very, very safe on the streets. You feel very, very safe about who you want to hang out with, what you want to do, where you want to work, where you want to live. So, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, I feel just as free in China as I do in America, providing I don't challenge the government. Um, but in order to make sure, in order for the government to make sure that they have control, um, that there is therefore no privacy. That's kind of the cost that society pays. It's a tra it's a transaction, and so far as both sides are feeling well paid. Yeah, it, exactly, exactly, and 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 you and you may and you know, it's it, I mean it's. Um, it's natural to kind of be, be lofty in one's ideals and say, oh, this is transactional. You know, why don't we aspire to higher standards? But again, you know, if, if you are the Chinese government and you're trying to manage a country uh, of, of, of this many people and trying to continue to lift them out of poverty and continue to bring them to a better future, you, 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 don't, have, you don't have room for a lot of dissent because that just slows you down, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so you, know, they, you know, a lot of people, e even though you know, Xi Jinping is kind of clamping down on the media, he's clamping down on NGOs, uh, there's not uh, a lot of value placed on, on, on privacy and on human rights, but for most people in China, they sense that the, the country is still moving in the right direction. And a lot of people worry about, well, what if she gets assassinated? What if he gets taken out? That's what a lot of people are worried about. So, 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 so you know, the, the country is becoming a little bit more draconian. That's also a transaction. You, you recognize that maybe you need to give up a little bit of freedom today in exchange for more freedom in the future. So I think that's kind of a, a mental transaction that most people make here in this country. So, Lyndon... What would you say is the biggest source of your optimism about China's future? Um, two things. Um, one is one is the size. One is the size of China. So, uh, you know, China continues to be, you know, the, the biggest market in the world, and and um, and under this benevolent dictatorship uh, co construct. Uh, you know, leaders are not leaders are not distracted by election. Um, you know, the country has kind of a state. I mean, it, it's kind of amazing that a country of this size peacefully transitions power. It's not through an election, but peacefully transitions power from generation to generation. Uh, and stability is very, very good for China. I mean, you take a look at Switzerland, right? It's this neutral country that has evaded wars. Uh, throughout the centuries. I mean, it's prospered. It's prospered because it has the luxury of stability, of, you know, continuing to, you know, companies continuing to grow uh, in accordance with their strategies. The country, the country continues to grow unencumbered, un undistracted by, by wars. I mean, I think that's what China is trying to do, is trying to, you know, grow stably. Um, but, but in order for that, in order to maintain that stability, unfortunately, it, it comes at, at a price. Uh, to other elements, which are important, which are very, very good, but which maybe, you know, compared with stability and continuing to move the country towards greater prosperity, uh, needs to be sacrificed in, in the short term. 
Um, so that, that that's one source of optimism that, you know, that I have confidence, I guess, in, in the leadership in China and in, in general in a benevolent dictatorship type of model. I mean, it, it's kind of weird for me to say this, but I just I just see it having achieved uh, quite a lot over the past few years. Um, and that 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 helps to that helps to, to feed my optimism. So if you had a source of pessimism, what, what would the major challenge, what, what do you see as a major challenge, the thing that could, that could blow this system? Um, war. War. I, I see that, you know, anytime, anytime you have a transition of geopolitical power, a big transition of geopolitical power, um, usually it's, it's difficult to, to do so without conflict. You know, you look at the transition of power from Europe to the States. Um, you know, if there are two world wars, um, which 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 transpire, and so it's um, you know, it, it, people get get uneasy, and and in a, in a world where in a world where you know a lot of a lot of problems uh, persist. Uh, you know, most countries are in debt. Uh, it doesn't look like uh, things are getting um, much better. Our companies are basically using quantitative easing and just printing money in order to stave off current problems and show them out to the future. In an, in an environment like that, people are looking more inward. So in hindsight, not surprised about Brexit. In hindsight, not, not surprised about the Donald Trump phenomenon. You know, people are a little bit more inward more focused on, okay, so what can I get, even if it's at other people's expense, rather than, you know, more outward and more global. And so I think what might derail this whole thing is if there's a war, which I'm increasingly worried about, because uh, we've been very lucky in our generation, but uh, I don't know about my kids. And if there were, over what would that be? I think it could be about territory, you know, kind of like the South China Seas right now, uh, kind of like um, the Ukraine and Russia, um, you know, about territory, about uh, assets, natural resources. Well, this, this has been just such an interesting conversation. I thank you, Lyndon. It's been a delight to share your perspective. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening. <laughs>